So we're starting a new series this morning, and it's going to be a four-week series called Why is the Resurrection uh, So Important? This series is for absolutely every single one of us, because we celebrate the resurrection, but we often get into this routine that, oh yeah, it's the resurrection, it's, it's wonderful, but we really ask the question, well, why is it wonderful? Why is it glorious? Why are we just celebrating, I would even say, with energy? Why? In fact, we can look in the Old Testament, and Jesus wasn't the only one that was raised from the dead. Did you know that? Elijah raised somebody from the dead in the Old Testament. So did Elisha. In fact, somebody fell on Elisha's grave, and that person was just raised from the dead. But then we're looking at Easter and saying, well, Jesus raised from the dead. It is the pinnacle of the Christian faith. It is the thing that drives the Bible. But what about those resurrections? Jesus also raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead. Why aren't we celebrating her resurrection? Yeah, we have Jesus' resurrection, but a week prior to Jesus' resurrection, he called Lazarus out of the grave and lay, raised Lazarus from the dead. How come we're not celebrating Lazarus' resurrection? We're celebrating Jesus. Even after Jesus died and rose again, there's a couple more resurrections that took place. Peter performed a resurrection. Somebody's raised from the dead by Peter. And also Paul, I think Paul's worst nightmare, preacher's worst nightmare happened. He's preaching a sermon and somebody fell asleep during on the second story building and this person fell from the building after he fell asleep, landed on the ground, and died. And uh, yeah, that is a big nightmare. But Paul cleaned it up. He went down, and what did he do? He raised the guy from the dead. And so there's all these resurrections in the Bible, but then I'm coming up here and saying, oh, we're getting close to Easter. And we're celebrating heavy and hard with passion Christ's resurrection. But we'll ask the question, why is it so important? Number one, the resurrection is important because it solidifies Jesus. What we're going to do this next four weeks is we're going to go through one chapter of the Bible. It is going to be uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is going to make the statements, four different statements, of why it is so important. And we're going to look at the different principles and the different statements of why it carries the importance that it does. The first thing it does, it solidifies who Jesus is. Let's look at the first passage, 1 through 11, and see where it solidifies. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you have received and which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I have received, I pass on to you as first importance. That is, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And that after he appeared to them, more than 500 brothers... Most of them are still living, and some who have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as one who is abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me is not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what we believe. What does it solidify? Three different things it solidifies. And then we'll see what happens after these three different things that it solidifies. How it solidifies Jesus. We'll see what that does to the church. 
One way it solidifies Jesus is number two, the resurrection solidifies Christ's teaching. We live in the world where there's a lot of opinions, and we live in the world where there's a lot of religions, and everybody got their, has their opinion on which religion is correct and which one is, is not. In fact, there's estimated 4,300, roughly 4,300 religions in this world. Some of the um, research says there's about 3,000, 3,500, so anywhere between 3,000 to 4,500 different religions in this world. Now, if you went to a religion and went to a church and say, which one is right, it all determines on what church you show up to and ask that question. So I'll ask you the question, which religion is right? <laughs> You're going to say, well, it's ours. Uh, but if there's two billion people believe in Christianity, and if you ask them, they're going to say, yeah, this is, this is right, but there's 1.5 billion that believe um, in Islam. So if you went to an Islam church and said, which religion is correct, what are they going to say? They're going to say, well, <laughs> duh, it's ours, correct. If you go to a native village and they believe in a completely entirely different religion and you ask them, which religion is correct, are they going to say Christianity if they're not practicing it? No, they're going to say, no, it's, it's our religion. So if there's 43 hundred religions, there could be 4,300 answers. Isn't that a ball of confusion? Isn't that something that we can look at and say, oh, I don't know which is correct, therefore what we've done in this world, we said, well, we'll just put them all together and, you know, call them all good and say they're all connected to God. But Jesus doesn't do this. Why? Because there's a resurrection that solidifies him. How does the resurrection solidify him? Well, one thing about it is that nobody taught like Jesus did. Nobody taught like Jesus did. This is how Jesus taught. He says, I am the bread of life. He looks at people and says, you know, I'm a vine. He says, I'm a light of the world. Now, this is aggressive teaching because he's not telling you about something. He's pointing to himself and saying, I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. And then he goes, on to say even more powerful things. I am the resurrection. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Now, this teaching is extremely aggressive, and I guarantee that it will attract a crowd. All you have to do is walk around and say, it is me. You take a miracle or two, you throw on top of that, well, you're definitely going to get a crowd. So it's an aggressive, extremely aggressive statements. With the miracles backing it up, it's going to change the world. But there's one problem with that teaching. You know what the problem with that teaching is? Is if you're going to put everything on yourself, then you can't die. Because if you die and you put everything on yourself, then all your teaching dies with you. Muhammad claimed that he received divine revelation from the archangel Gabriel. But did he ever put any teaching on top of himself? Muhammad understood that he was going to go to the grave, and he believed he was going to go to the grave. He can't put the teaching on himself. He had to put the teaching somewhere else because he knew where his destination was going to be. Even Buddha. Buddha came, and he had the teaching of enlightenment. He says, let me give you the path of divine influence, and let me give you answers of the divine connection. But he never pointed his direction. He consistently pointed elsewhere, and the reason why he pointed elsewhere, because he knew where his destination was going to be, and if he put his teaching on himself, then his teaching would not live outside of him when he dies. Because everything is dead if you put the teaching on yourself. Christ did. And name one other person on this planet that has ever walked that did something as radical as that. 1 Corinthians 15, 
Christ died. <laughs> oh. Have you ever looked at the three days in the upper room from the disciples? These disciples gave their life completely to Jesus for three years. They followed him. They believed him. They loved him. They took on everything he said. They heard the words, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. And then he went to this cross. And on the process of going to this cross, Peter starts to even doubt it, like going, ah, if he's going to die, I'm going to be made a fool if he dies because I'm following an answer that is going to death. And so Jesus dies on the cross, and there you have these disciples in the upper room. What do you think conversations were? Jesus said, I am, but he's dead, therefore he isn't. He said he's the way, but he's dead, therefore he isn't the way. He says he's the life, but how can you be the life if you're dead? Can you figure out the stress that was taking place in the upper room? There's a reason why Peter, John, and James rushed to that grave when they heard that Jesus was resurrected. They rushed to the grave because all the stock that they put into died. And when they heard that Jesus was alive, what does that say? It unfolds that everything that he has ever said completely true, completely validated, completely solidified. It doesn't stop. Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, given an explanation, but then he did what? He raised from the dead. Everything he said is true. Why? Only, specifically, because he raised. What else does it solidify? Number three, the resurrection solidifies Christ as the source of salvation. When Buddha died, they said that uh, the world would never be the same without him. During his life, they said it was the most powerful time, the most divine time the planet has ever seen. But when he went to the grave, what happened? He was no longer alive. He was dead, and the world was going to suffer. Therefore, what do they do? They mourn him. If you look at Muhammad, what happened? He died, and then after he died, his tomb is actually visited by tens of thousands of people every single year. To do what? To mourn his death thinking that he carried such power is what they're looking at, carried so much power, but then he is dead. How many of you mourn Jesus? How many people in this world mourn Jesus' death? I'm going to Israel next month, actually. And when I walk into Israel, there's no mourning of Jesus' death. Yeah, we'll even go to the tomb. But as we go to the tomb, it's not going to go to the tomb for any sort of solemn reason whatsoever. It's not even going to be inside of us. In fact, when we go to the tomb, what's there going to be? There's going to be excitement. And the guy who you know, gives us the guide and you know, understands tourists, he says, look at the tomb. But remember the most amazing thing about the tomb that you're going to look at is what? <laughs> it's empty. Nobody mourns Jesus' death. He put all the teaching on him, and he brought it all to the grave. And the resurrection is the tip of the sword that says Jesus' death carries the salvation to save your soul, and the resurrection is that explanation. That is what the explanation is. 1 Corinthians 15.1, by this gospel you are saved. This is Paul talking at the top of the verse, or the top of the passage. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. What gospel is he talking about? Talking about the same thing we've already read. Christ died for our sins 
according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day. This is the gospel that saves you. A gospel of a Messiah that put all his teaching on him. I am the bread, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. I'm going to a cross for a reason, paying a price for something which is your sin, but I will not remain dead three days later. I will rise again. And that's why we do not mourn Jesus' death. We're excited about what took place because his death gives us salvation and his resurrection then gives us life because he did not remain dead. Number four, the resurrection solidifies Christ's connection with the Old Testament scriptures. This is huge, but it's a big, big question. And I will say that is the most controversial thing in the New Testament that even took place. Is they have the Old Testament law, they have the law of Moses, they have the law of the prophets, they hold on to this law. It is a strong law, it is a powerful law because it is from specifically God. And then all of a sudden, Paul writes these verses Christ died for our sins according to what? The scriptures. That he was buried and that he had raised on the third day according to what? The scriptures. Now, when we read this, we say, well, what scriptures? What scriptures is he talking about? Well, he's talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Is he really talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? I'll just to give you a little fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not written before 1 Corinthians. In fact, almost all of Paul's letters were written before the Gospels were ever written. So they're not carrying the Gospels. Paul is not carrying the Gospels. Let's look at a chart here. Who's the first person in the, I mean, if you look at the chronological order, James is the first person that wrote his book. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Galatians. Now we have 1 Corinthians. Remember we're in 1 Corinthians talking about what? The resurrection. What? 57 AD. You see what's taking place? He's writing about the resurrection, but there's no scripture that he's reading because Luke doesn't come till six years after he has mentioned the resurrection. And Mark doesn't even come till eight years after, and Matthew comes nine years after the resurrection. Here Paul is writing a book with absolute extreme authority, and what's he talking about? He's talking about a resurrection without any necessary book that is even describing it. What is going on? Well, Paul is going to these disciples and saying, what is happening out there? Give me this message. And do you know what the message is? It's just one little simple message. Jesus is what? Is alive. And therefore, his resurrection comes according to what? The scripture. So after he hears the word Jesus is alive, where does he go? He goes to the scriptures. It's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. He goes to the Old Testament. And when he goes to the Old Testament, he's like, oh my goodness, Jesus is alive according to what? The Old Testament scriptures. And then what does he do all the way through the book of Acts? He's a preacher of the word. So as he's a preacher of the word, what's he going to preach? He's going to preach the scriptures talking about what? Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Acts 17. He goes to um, the town of Thessalonica, and as he's talking, he's going to give this gospel. But as he gives the gospel, how does he do it? Look at it. As his custom was, Paul went to the synagogue. These are the people that teach the law, people that teach the Old Testament, people that teach the book of Moses. Went to the synagogue, and on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them with the scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament scriptures. 
What was he reasoning with the Old Testament Scriptures? The verse continues, explaining from the Old Testament Scriptures and proving from the Old Testament Scriptures that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. He said, what's he doing? He's taking the Old Testament and says, here's your Old Testament answer. This is extremely aggressive teaching. Somebody that, you know, says, I am, I am, I am, then went to the grave. Then what happens when he rose from the dead, Paul is convinced. And when Paul is convinced, he says, oh my goodness, the entire Old Testament is pointing to this one specific man. And he goes to every town. Here he goes to Athens. And what does he do? Well, I'm going to preach the scriptures. Now, in the Bereans were more noble character than the Thessalonians. We talked to Thessalonians before. For they had received the message with great eagerness and examined what? The scriptures. What? Old Testament. Examined the Old Testament every day to see if what Paul said was true. What was Paul saying? Jesus died. Jesus rose. He's the Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures. He goes to Antioch. He preaches the same message from the scriptures. Acts 18. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from what? The scriptures. What was he proving? That Jesus was the Christ. Where is he proving it from? From the Old Testament scriptures. Is that correct? Here's Luke 24. This is from Jesus' mouth specifically. He, this is Jesus talking, said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled what was written about me. This is Jesus talking about Jesus. Where? In the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. You just get very specific that it's about what? All the Old Testament is specifically about him. Then he opened up the minds so they can understand what? The Old Testament. So what happens is when Jesus died, Jesus rose, he unfolded the Old Testament, and they opened up the minds like, now I understand the Old Testament. Why? Because of the resurrection. He told them, this is what was written, that Christ will suffer and he'll rise from the dead on the third day. Jesus is doing this. He says, I am, I am, I am, I am. But then he's taking the Old Testament scripture and he's completely unfolding it to everybody that has heard his teaching. And Paul is the driving force of this. In Judaism, they're still waiting for the Messiah. They're still waiting for God to come. Why? Because the Old Testament portrays that God is going to come. And they're still waiting for it. But they reject Jesus. And the reason why they reject Jesus is because Jesus did not fulfill the Mosaic prophecies. This is what they believe, that Jesus did not not, um, embody a personal qualifications of the Messiah. It's like, yeah, Jesus is wonderful. Jesus is going to be a prophet. But he has no way the Messiah, because he's definitely not the one that we're looking for. So what happens is in Judaism, we're still waiting for the coming of Messiah. Well, there is one radical, crazy, baddest, strongest Jew that's probably ever walked on this planet. His name was Paul of Tarsus. And Paul of Tarsus believed the Scriptures more than anybody else. I'll just say those because he's a passionate guy. And he believed the Scriptures so much that if anybody's going to threaten the God of the Scriptures, which would be the Old Testament... Those persons were going to die. So what did he do? Anybody that embraced Jesus, he was going to kill him. This is found in Acts. What does he do? He goes to to Damascus to kill somebody, to kill the Christians, to stop this belief that Jesus is like this Messiah. So what does he do on the road to Damascus? Well, God shows up. Now there's a conversation that takes place. Because there's only a couple words that come out of Paul's mouth. And what are the couple words? 
couple words is, who are you? <laughs> That's it. What do you get from Jesus? I am Jesus, the Messiah, the one you're persecuting. You notice what does not take place in that conversation? What does not take place in that conversation is, are you part of the Trinity? What does not take place in that conversation is, are, are, are you the one that the Old Testament Scripture is talking about? There is no dialogue in that conversation at all that gives an explanation that Jesus is the Messiah. There is only one statement that Paul is blown away with. You know what that statement is? That Jesus is alive. That's it. Jesus is alive. Jesus died, and Jesus is alive, and he's standing in front of me saying, I am persecuting his people, meaning he's still alive. And what happens? Conversion instantly takes place. How does conversion take place? He was dead. He's alive. Everything will come together. (laughs) Because I've seen a simple fact. That Christ is alive. He must have risen from the dead. Number five, the church did not start as a result of planning, strategy, or an organized development. It was a result of an explosive joy about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On Friday, I went rafting on the Clackamas River. You're probably thinking, what would I be rafting on the Clackamas River on Friday for? It was pouring down rain, it was cold, and it was windy. Um, I will blame it on my daughters. My daughters are absolutely crazy. They said we do not have a school day, therefore let's uh, get a group of people together and let's raft the Clackamas River. Me being the stupid dad that I am, I said, sure, yeah, we'll raft the Clackamas River. So they got um, seven young people, 15 being the youngest and I think 20 being the oldest, and they said, all right, Dad, let's go on this Clackamas River. So, of course enough, of course, sure enough, it was cold, it was freezing, and the water was pushing flood stage. So it was a little crazy. We had one person that was in, um, in particular that was 15 years old, and he's never been rafting before in his life. And uh, he's hanging out uh, with us. And uh, I think he probably had some questions. I assume he had some questions. But when we showed up to the water and we were starting to drive along where we're going to raft right before we put in, he was looking down at the water and he uh, mumbled some statements in a sense. And this was the full statement. But, uh, you know, I'm in a warm car. I came from a warm house. Um, I'm very comfortable right now. Would, why would we step out of this car onto that freezing cold river that is absolutely windy, blowing, and completely wild? Why would we do that deliberately? <laughs> Makes no sense. And, uh, but we didn't pay any attention as he looked down. We just continued to go, and we got into where we put it on the raft. So sure enough, we all put wetsuits on because, you know, we're safe people. We put wetsuits on, and I told him, I said, if anybody falls in, just let you know that wetsuit you're putting on, you can credit your life to it. In other words, it saved your life. So they go, oh, that's a good idea. If I fall in, this wetsuit saved my life. But we weren't thinking anybody's going to fall in until we got on the river. When we got on the river, the river was definitely higher than normal. The first rapid was big, strong, powerful, and I was a little bit too relaxed, and we hit a rock. And when we hit a rock, I fell out the back. My youngest 15-year-old daughter fell out the back. And he, being 15, who'd never rafted before, good weather or bad, fell out the back with me. And when I came up, I saw him in his face, and he's like, ah, not good. So sure enough, what do we do? We swim to shore. We're okay. We go up to where the raft is at. The raft did not only hit the rock, the raft wrapped around the rock, meaning that the water pushed into the rock, and then it dropped into the water and wrapped literally around the rock where it is stuck, connected. So we can say the boat sunk. We're just starting. It was only the first rapid. 
And sure enough, as we looked at all the boat sunk, we weren't as concerned about that as we were concerned about this 15-year-old kid. So we just started convincing him, don't worry, our rafting trips usually don't happen like this. And that's what all of us just consistently said. Don't worry, don't sweat it, it's going to be work. So sure enough, we got the raft off about a half hour, 45 minutes, getting the raft off the rock, and then we hit the water again. And again, being at flood stages, it was obviously bigger than normal. And we came up to one of the last rapids, known as Toilet Bowl, and Toilet Bowl is the largest standing waves in Oregon. And with high water, they're larger than normal. And uh, we were having a great experience because the water was big, but this was going to be extremely big. We knew it. We all had a grin on our face. And sure enough, we hit that, and when we hit that, it blew everybody off the boat except the 15-year-old kid. When I got blown off the boat, of course, you go into the water, and then your head pops up. And I looked up, and I saw that 15-year-old kid, and he looked right into my face going, uh, it's just this pale look. I know he's all right, but I guess guarantee that he was, I don't know what he was thinking. But anyway, we all swam to shore. We pulled the raft to the shore in the freezing cold water. We all got in. We were laughing. We finished off the river. That night, my girls had, you know, some people come over and watch a movie, and that 15-year-old boy came back to our house that night after that rafting day with a fire in his eyes saying, that was an awesome day, and if you ever go rafting again, you know, I'd be the first one to show up. And I said, now you know why we do it deliberately. See, what happens is his heart got captivated by something. And when his heart was captivated by something, I'll just say the words, it made him a little crazy. And what I mean by a little crazy is that you do things that you probably shouldn't be doing or maybe even the normal don't do, but when it is fun, it takes you, it drives you, it moves you, it pushes you, and you find joy, excitement, energy from it. There is something that captivated the early church. That river captivated that young man. But there's something that even more powerful captivated the early church. And do you know what it was? It was not a set of teaching to obey. It was not a set of ethics to understand and to be committed to. It was not a set of even beliefs that you had to walk through that would hold you. Do you know what just captivated their emotion that gave them a fire in their eyes, that gave them a passion to go even into modernism if it required it? It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was alive. He died. And now he's alive. He rose again. What took place? If that happened and he is alive, his death has a meaning. And his meaning is that my soul is saved. And he took my sin, what, to the grave. And when he took my sin to the grave, he did not remain dead. He rose again. And now he is mine. Therefore, he is the ultimate answer. Everything is completely solidified over what thing? Specifically, the resurrection. What drove the church? That message. He was dead. But now, he's alive. He was dead. But now he's alive. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture, that watch something radical happen. And he appeared, this is where the power is at, he appeared to Peter. How many books of the Bible did Peter write? Say three. Worked with Mark to write the book of Mark. He wrote three books of the Bible. And then he appeared to somebody else. He appeared to the twelve. 
How many books did that? 12, right? They wrote five. And that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Now, there's no recording of when he appeared to 500 people specifically at the same time, but it's mentioned there. Most of them who are still living, though some are falling asleep. Then he appeared to somebody else. He appeared to his brother, his brother James. How many books did James write? He wrote one book. Then to all the apostles. And at last he appeared to one more person. He appeared to me, which is who? Paul the apostle. How many books in the New Testament did he write? He wrote 13. Wait a second. Where is the power at that launched the church? The power that launched the church is Christ taught, Christ died, Christ appeared. What? Christ rose. 22 books out of 27 in the New Testament were ones that are found just right in this passage. Everything Christ said is legitimate. And it's legitimate, why? Because he's not dead. It's legitimate, why? Because he rose from the grave. Number six, the resurrection planted and drove the church. Make it the driving source of your Christian faith. There's something that is going to drive us, and we've got to do something with what? The resurrection. It's too radical to ignore. So we can pull it completely out and go a different direction, or we're going to pull it completely in, embrace it fully. It's too radical to ignore, ignore because it is history. And the history is, I died, and then people saw me again. This is what drove the church. Jesus died, and we saw him. That's the only message. We died, and we saw him. Look at the Old Testament. Now what's taking place? It's completely solidified. Look at everything that Jesus says. Now what's taking place? It's completely solidified. He is who he says he is. Why? Because of the resurrection, and that's it. So how should we take this? It should be the driving source of our life. Jesus died. Jesus rose. He is who he says he is. Is it the driving source of your life? 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living and some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least, this is Paul's response to receiving just that statement of resurrection, for I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But, he's going to give himself an identity, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I have a brand new identity, and his grace that he has given me was not without any effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me, whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. Paul is driven by only one thing. Only one thing. He says it was not without effect, and it is the grace of God. And what is the grace of God? I went to the cross. I died, but I didn't stay dead. I'm alive I am your God, and it affected his life. And do you know what they call that? They call that conversion. Conversion in the sense that if God is alive, I can ask the question, is he my God, or is he not my God? It's a historical event that there is a Jesus. It's a historical event that the Romans, the Jews killed Jesus. 
and they killed him on the cross. And it was the Romans, the one that, that the Jews drove it, the Romans killed him. This is a historical event. Now the only question that remains is, did he resurrect or not? If he resurrected, that's a heartbeat of the Christian faith. If he didn't, then you need to give another logical explanation of how the church in the early centuries started. Because all they were doing is responding off that resurrection that he's alive. Now, if he remained dead, how did that church start? What were they working with? Were they working with Jesus' teaching? They could not have worked with Jesus' teaching. The reason why they couldn't, because he said, I am, I am, I am, I am. They're working specifically with that resurrection because it solidifies exactly who Christ is. So if you believe that it solidifies who Christ is, ask the question, is it the thing that's driving me? We're going to take communion. As we're taking communion, we're going to come up here, and the elements are here, the juice and also the bread. Uh, Why are we taking communion? Uh, We take communion once a month just to reflect on the gift that you have been given by Christ. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled out for you. I did it for a purpose, and the purpose is you. Don't worry, I didn't remain dead. Don't mourn it. Celebrate it. Why? Because it's a resurrection. So as you come up here and you take communion, I want you to ask the question, is this resurrection the thing that's driving my life? Is this thing that's driving my Christian faith? I've got to do something with Jesus. Or is something else driving my Christian faith? Make sure it is the resurrection. God, I thank you for every person that is in the room. And God, I just um, thank you that every person has the opportunity for salvation. You did all the work, God. You went to the cross and you rose again. And it says if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will be saved. Thank you, God, for that gift. And God, as we come to the table, I just pray, God, that it will be a time of celebration for that gift. And for anybody that comes to the table, God, that does not know you, I just pray it will be a first time of interaction with you, a time of revelation of what you have done for them, and a time that they would embrace you. Thank you, God, for this grace and for this gift. In Christ's name, amen.